0: How often do you go to the grocery store? It's an interesting question because when I was living in Boston, I found myself going almost every other day, and now that I've moved to Utah, I've managed to get my trips to JoJo's, um, and what I mean by JoJo's is Trader Joe's, down to about once every two weeks. I factor in all the snacks, the frozen food, the perishables, all to a point where I can manage to get through a month with only two refueling stops. And this has made it so I'm basically saving more money than if I were going once a week or every other day, because every time I go, there always ends up being an item or two that I didn't really plan on getting, which obviously increases my overall grocery spend. Running a SaaS and subscription business is actually pretty similar. And I'm not talking about the office snack budget, obviously. I'm talking about capital efficiency. Whether you're customer funded or in a late stage pre-IPO round, you've got resources you need to manage. And the best way to do that is to have a framework for using capital efficiently. And one of the best people out there in terms of using capital efficiently is John Yonke, the CEO of Tackle.io. With a career spanning multiple decades, as well as being backed by Bessemer and A16Z, John has an educated look into what using capital efficiently and effectively actually means. Learn more about his journey and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, John Yonke dives deep on using capital efficiently. We talk about market integration, the baseline of effective selling, the framework of capital efficiency, calibrating planning cycles, and insights on product stacking. Yeah, who are you? What do you guys do? Let's start there.
1: Yeah, so I'm John Yonke. I'm CEO of Tackle, and we help software companies sell through the cloud marketplaces. Our platform eliminates the engineering work that they'd have to normally build software to sell software. We try to make that go away. We work with AWS, Azure, and GCP, and we work with seed stage startups up to some of the largest software companies.
0: And selling through these cloud marketplaces, explain that to someone who doesn't get it. Because what I found is there's these companies that do this, like basically your customers who are just crushing it and you wouldn't even know. Yeah. And all of us like bozos out here are like trying to sell direct and all these other things. Like, so explain, explain that model. a little bit. Yeah. I I
1: think the, you know, if you think about where the budget dollars and enterprise is going, they're being consumed by the clouds and marketplace is a way to tap into the cloud committed spend and then put third-party software directly onto your cloud bill. So if you're a company that has a value prop that a normal cloud buyer would resonate with, and almost all companies these days do, you could ask them that question question of, Hey, would it be easier to buy from us on your cloud bill? And then you can use a budget as well as the contracting vehicles provided by the cloud providers in order to transact like new deals, faster, bigger deals. Our first customer was new relic and you know, they were trying to build for marketplace and were struggling. They just didn't have the expertise at the time. And they're an amazing product company They have hundreds of engineers, but all those engineers wanted to focus on building features that delighted their customers and not doing these cloud marketplace integrations. So that's where it became, they're like, Hey, if half of what you say is true we're in.
0: Is it like mainly things that like tie directly into the cloud or is it something where it's like, it can tie into the cloud spend, but it's not necessarily like a DevOps tool. Or
1: In the early days of Marketplace, it was very much more developer-aligned, IT infrastructure-aligned. So some of our early customers were Druva and Off 0 and New Relic and CyberArk. Uh, PagerDuty was an early customer. But now you're seeing as cloud budget moves from a kind of departmental decision-maker, like director of development or director of infrastructure, to an enterprise decision where... Most CEOs and CFOs are involved in the who do we strategically partner with from a cloud standpoint. It it shifts the budget center to procurement, who's looking at how do I get the most out of my cloud budget? And they think much more broadly. So we actually we just published a state of the cloud marketplace report and uh, 60 percent of the people who were not in technology roles said they had bought through marketplace in the last year and they all said they would again. And we actually just launched, it uh, got announced today with Kerasoft and Zoom. You know, Zoom is going into AWS marketplace. We partner with Kerasoft to help them solve for government. So we're seeing a lot more from a business buyer standpoint, business this, products.
0: Yeah, is this literally just because of... Internal procurement
1: First is budget like access to cloud budget and especially as a startup when we were born there no one had a budget line item for cloud marketplace middleware but we were able to we sell through the cloud marketplace like oh do you want to put put that on your AWS or Azure bill or GCP bill Uh, and we were able to grow really easily that way and then they all offer some form of standard contract where you can just ride along. And if you think about app stores, like no one reads the terms of service on the Apple app store. You're like, yeah, you're like yeah, yeah, scroll, scroll, click. Yes, I'm good. You know, that's where these clouds are going, where people who who are there are, you know, the buyers are gonna be like, all right, I have some level of comfort that under the umbrella of AWS or Azure or GCP, that this is a good product and I can use it without any fear.
0: I think it's a lot of people when they're selling or having a company, they don't realize that the way an enterprise buys is so crucial to like getting across a deal. Yeah. What's the type of company like that should be on, you yeah. know, doing this? Or what are the type of companies like we're not quite there yet?
1: Anyone who can answer that question of would it be easier to buy from us on your cloud bill? If your buyer says yes to that, then there's an opportunity to sell through marketplace. I, I do still think we're in the era... We're kind of transitioning between the IT infrastructure era in Cloud Marketplace to the business application era of Cloud Marketplace. And you know, one of our customers is Seek and they're a IoT manufacturing platform. Of northeast Roots, you probably know those. The, the, and they've had a lot of success in Marketplace, even though their economic buyer isn't traditionally the person that owns the cloud budget, but they're close enough to it to say, we want all of this data flowing to the cloud. So there's alignment with the stakeholder who's buying and the concept of cloud. And I think you, you've seen a lot of push from the cloud providers to verticalize so like amazon and microsoft and google are are all talking about solutions for different verticals and the more they look to verticalize their clouds the more i think that opens up marketplace to pretty much any software that's out there
0: yeah it's super interesting it's just one of those things that's always kind of funny to look at like obviously what works what doesn't but also like it's it's always hard to figure out are you like putting a square peg in a round hole or are you literally like that round peg that needs to be there.
1: If people are unsure, we encourage them to go, go find demand, go talk like, to start someone. with demand. Yeah. Like, You're not just gonna sell you know, yes, uh, Yeah, tackle. I mean, just because don't do, if you build it, they will come marketplace. Go find some demand, ask those questions, understand your value prop for why your product and why a cloud buyer, and then see. And more of our customers today are showing up with a buyer in hand or a multiple buyers in hand, where they're like, all right, we already have someone and then we can help them kind of list and start selling in weeks instead of you know months if they try to do it on their own
0: that's interesting why why this over anything else you could build or start
1: so founders and i we all have been in enterprise software our entire career and uh always in sales or customer success or pre-sales and the uh, you know, dylan woods our founder and cto he was he was actually playing around with marketplace for a different company it was like i think you know the clouds have changed the way so many things operate but they haven't changed the way that software is sold and i think this marketplace thing offers an opportunity for for su- the cloud providers to go disrupt the way software sold but it, it's not easy and i think there's a way for us to come up with a product to make it easy so we kicked off raising a, a seed round at that time to go experiment we started to experiment played with a few different ideas and then landed on this middleware for cloud marketplace value prop. And it was funny, like in the early days of product market fit, you're just, you know, who's your first customer? How do you help them deliver value? How do you make that repeatable? And we were able to go, you know, through uh, a pretty interesting cohort of customers uh, as our first group. It was the, that's cool. um, yeah, you know, new relic, as I said, PagerDuty, Auth0, yeah. CyberArk. As a lifelong seller, the chance to change the way that software sold is a ton of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a classic, like we saw the pain and, Need to yeah. solve that itch yeah why tackle you big fly fisherman?
1: Yeah, it's uh, so Dylan and Brian they're uh, both from Boise, Idaho. I'm there from you Buffalo, go. New York. Yeah. So they're super outdoorsy. They actually had the name of the company before the company. They're like we're going to so name this. Yeah. Like we know we're going to start a company. We need to like <laughs> post up on a name that we like, and there were requirements. It we'll had, connect to be, the had to be brown Had to be a common yeah. word. It couldn't be something like the smash together words yeah, or yeah, something yeah. that's really hard to pronounce. So uh, and they found <laughs> tackle.io. The logo actually has ones and zeros in it, so it's a fly <laughs> made up of ones and zeros. And I like that Uh, yeah
0: that's cool i don't understand fly fishing i moved to utah everyone loves it i'm like i don't get it have you tried i like yes but not seriously so it's a little unfair and i also like i grew up hunting and so it feels kind of like arrogant of me to be like oh you know that thing where you do that but i'm like basically fishing on land you know hunting for something which is the same thing i'm going to judge you for your thing but what were you doing before this? Like, how did you get here? Like you mentioned you were doing enterprise sales, but like, what what was that journey like?
1: Yeah. So I started, started my career as an SE at EMC in 2000. And, uh, I actually was a data general customer and EMC bought data general in the late nineties. And I happened to be one of the handful of people that knew something about open source and storage and, uh, So found my way to an SE role, never really knew what that meant until I fell in love with the job. It's like the intersection of go to market and product. Uh, And I always tell people new in their career, I'm like, I think product management and SE are the best place to start if you want to be in enterprise Mm. software, because you really can learn so much. So I was there and then just grew up in like, Field-facing roles, mostly enterprise, always emerging tech. So yeah. uh, pre-sales and services and sales. And I was going to leave EMC in the late 2000s, like 2008, 2009, and start an AWS migration company. And then yeah. uh, we were going to acquire this big data analytics startup, Greenplum. And Got it. Uh, Some friends convinced me that I should stay and go help Green Plum scale. So I did that. And that's where Brian, Dylan, and I met in 2010. And then Green Plum became the foundation for Pivotal, which was a big software company that went public. Yeah.
0: Spent it's a, a lot small of time company that no one's really heard of. it yeah, a lot of doing. time
1: uh, helping enterprises like change the way they built software yeah. and leverage data. So that was a really, really fun journey. I left there in 2017 and went to Cognizant to drive digital engineering, which was, you know, evolving the 65,000 software engineers that Cognizant had into yeah. product engineering teams. And so it's been a little while doing that. And on that journey is when, you know, Tackle got started. So that's I joined cool. that shortly thereafter.
0: EMC is one of those companies that a lot of people have no idea what they do. Um, but a lot of people use them, you know, and spend a lot of money, but their sales organization is known for being very good and their engineering organization as well. So they got a lot of things going for them. What do you see that like EMC got so right and was like such a good training ground for like you as well as other people that you just don't see in other places.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. So I I joined in 2000. We scaled from 15,000 to 37,000 people in the next year. And then uh, 9-11 hit and the economy went sideways and we shrank to like 12,000 people. And the 12,000 people that were left were unbelievable. It really became the foundation for growth. And Joe Tucci... Had taken over a CEO, and he was a really like customer centric, like do whatever it took for customers. And we we worked with a Fortune 2000, like yeah. pri- that was our primary customer base. So I, I worked with lots of big banks and very technical organizations, and and just like that whole cu- culture centered around customer obsession. And kind of I think long before. You know, maybe AWS popularized or Amazon popularized the customer obsession as a, a leadership principle, but we live that way. To today, I think you know new founders who grew up in uh, engineering roles. I'm always like, you have to you have to get comfortable selling, like, and that's that's not just like getting the deal is not the thing that matters. It's actually making your customer successful, <laughs> like, yeah, totally. like putting those two together. So you have to come up with something that's good for them and good for you. Everyone wants everyone to win if you solve problems for people. So. Yeah.
0: What's the biggest difference that you see between like, I don't know, the mid-market or even below the mid-market sale versus like selling to the Fortune 2000, which tends to be, you know, beefier, if you will?
1: It all comes back to value, like what value are you delivering? And how do you explain that in a way that makes sense to people and, and, and really big companies want to, you know, they don't necessarily want to partner with hundreds or 1000s of companies, even though most enterprises have 1000s of partners that they work with, they're trying to think about how to consolidate, you really need to understand the details of their business and their problems are really complicated. So unlike in I think, you know, when you're small, selling to smaller businesses, or even medium sized businesses, it could be a very very repeatable and consistent message you have to have a higher tolerance for variance in the enterprise because they're Mm. probably going to have some pretty unique requirements that will challenge you to think about your roadmap and be like does this fit into what we're trying to build if it doesn't do we want to do this work in order to win because those decisions have huge consequences and and i think um you know, I, I, I always encourage early stage founders, like you want to be really true to your mission, like stay focused on your mission and find. And even though there may be people that are adjacent that want to work with you or pieces and parts of what you do solve their problems, it, like enter those relationships with caution. So because yeah. they can they can completely change the direction of your product mm. or, and company over time.
0: Yeah. I think you said something interesting there that kind of ties back to the, the tackle part that we were talking about, where. I think a lot of people don't realize how much like operational stuff like a buyer at an enterprise large company has to deal with. Yeah. Like, it, like it's not just you and I sitting down and being like, you have this problem, it impacts this much, I have a proven track record of solving it this much, like you should buy it, right? It, it, that's, that's just the start, right? Totally. Oh cool, the, the, the person who fits that ICP profile said yes. Yeah. They gotta stick their neck out to go do this and go do that. And then procurement's gonna get like in the whole map of the deal, like can get really, really frustrating. But it's like that's how they buy. And if you can better, you know, not to do a soft sales pitch for tackle, but if you can better like align it with how they buy, Mm -hmm. then that takes an extra like speed bump off of the things that they have to worry about, which I think is we're learning more and more as we go up market, like up market for us right now is going from, you know, hundred million dollar companies to $300 million companies. Right. Um, that even there, there's a step of like, you know, championing and really mapping deals. I was
1: talking to a friend at Ford recently and he's like, you know, for us to put a new vendor into our procurement system is like a three to six month process. And, uh, And whatever the process, and I'm sure they can always go faster when they want to. But the process to get to you're a certified vendor in this enterprise ecosystem, people always underestimate. And and you see deals just die because people get tired trying. And that's where I think if you can align with, hey, you already spend a lot of money with this company. Yeah. This is why ecosystems are going to become such a big deal. And why I think you'll see marketplaces continue to evolve and those that are really successful take more share of wallet i think salesforce is a great example of this where it's so much easier under the salesforce umbrella to be like okay if i sell a plugin for salesforce i'm going to sell it through app exchange because it just goes under that salesforce contract
0: which as a product person and even go to market person you just i don't appreciate it like i'm always like this is so dumb like i yeah. understand <laughs> like why it is but it's like we need to like go through this whole thing. And it's like, yeah, because they want the stamp. Like imagine, I don't know how it is a tackle, but I can just imagine that converse, conversation with our CPO. Like, why do we need to build this? Oh, well, because they need the stamp and they want the like custom terms and stuff. Well, why can't they just use our terms? It's an interesting value prop that I don't think is appreciated as much until you have someone like you or like similar, who's like sold this type of stuff to those types of buyers before who knows, like, listen, I've seen this enough times. I know that. It's not going to go through unless we're in the Salesforce marketplace or something like that. So
1: I think the a pre, in the SaaS ecosystem, you're seeing more and more builders appreciate that they can buy things now. Like no one's going to buy, no one's going to build authentication anymore. Five or seven years ago, they would have. Everyone's going to use Auth0, or no one's going to build communication services. They're just going to use Twilio, and no one's going to build infrastructure as a service. They're going to use AWS, Azure, GCP, and it's like you can get to these.
0: Or they start at Heroku and then go to AWS. Yeah, yeah right. just they make it get easier. to these yeah, core yeah, yeah. components
1: to get started with so much faster. And then they they can you know kind of pinpoint their value equation for their, their ideal customer.
0: Yeah and speaking of that value equation, I know some of your passion about capital efficiency. Yeah. That's my hard pivot. Like it's something I don't think enough people appreciate very similar to like the sales process we were just talking about tell us a little bit about like what is capital efficiency it's a little obvious but like hopefully you can explain yeah. Yeah. and then also like why is it so important and what what do people miss and we can go and build a framework from there sure yeah
1: like, so capital efficiency to me is like how how much capital do you need to take in order to build a company and it has a lot of different definitions but uh we always use the burn multiple like how much money do you have to burn in order to generate arr because it's like the convergence of all your things it's your product it's your sales team it's your customer success it's your marketing all put back together into how efficiently are people receiving that And, and for us like we grew up in you know, we spent brian dylan and i all spent time in startups that were extremely well funded and took some growth at all cost type yeah. paths where okay we're going to go add 50 salespeople, everyone gets a million dollar quota, we should do $50 million in ARR. And it doesn't quite work that way. And it it does, yeah, right. It's (laughs) like, I I actually am giving a talk tomorrow and uh, one of the topics is like the growth formula, is simple ish, like salesperson times quota times expected production and sprinkle some marketing on it. Like it should just work. And that's not how it works at all. (laughs) It's, so you're trying to, trying to look at that and decompose it down into, you know, and I like the nail it and scale it philosophy. How do you get to nailing the initial value proposition as fast and efficiently as possible and then scaling once you understand the unit economics of scale?
0: I think the thing though with capital efficiency is a lot of times like the inputs into the formula can get a little complicated, right? Because, you know, you can obviously look at last three to six months, but there's always that sales leader who's like, yeah, but if we improve this number by like this amount, you know, this will change and you're making decisions off of some of that murky feels data driven, you know, capital efficiency should obviously be a focus, but if I'm just starting off, like, I'm like, oh, I need to get a better focus. Like, where do you recommend people start?
1: Yeah, I, I think so, so much like we we would decompose the problem into like what's the minimum viable team that we need in order to pursue some sort of goal and you know for us it ended up being a combination of customer count and ARR. Yep. It's like okay, our first our first team was three people. How yep. could we get to some form of product, some understanding around the value equation of that and get to our first 10 customers and be like okay, we now understand how to make it repeatable from 10 to 100. And if we can go from 10 to 100 and we can increase our ARR by five times and, you know, understand how that trickles down into you know, your sales force, what kind of salesperson you need, your customer success team, how much time does it take to support them, your marketing team, what kind of, yeah. how do you want to even start? Do you want to start with SEO? Do you want to start with content? Do you want to start with account-based marketing? Because you can't do everything. And I think the, the thing a lot of people who end up not being capital efficient do is they try to do all the things that you'll do at say 10 million in ARR plus yeah. right away and you, you don't have enough money or resources to do that well so we tried we always decomposed it down that way and that's what I always encourage people to think about and so much like the the milestone of a million dollars in ARR and SAS is, is such a huge point get to a million in ARR and things start to happen and then you're going to feel like you're behind until you're 10 million in ARR when the cavalry will come yeah um,
0: well, then you're also going to feel, I mean, we, when we hit 10, it was a very weird feeling of like, oh, we have a lot of fronts we're fighting. Like, and that's where, like, even if you focus on that zero to t- zero to one, one to 10, I mean, we're bootstrapped. And so that's, that throws the wrench into it where it's like, you know, if you, that, that's why we're probably going to raise money pretty soon. Cause we're just like, now we're fighting these fronts. And also we know where their efficiency would come from, where some of those inputs, at least from a like, growth standpoint, we were guessing or like didn't have enough data on. So I noticed that a lot of people just aren't professional with like, they they know their burn, like, and they know where they're headed. Do you think it's like setting the goal and then figuring out the team? Or is it like, this is the amount of resource I can get and therefore... Like it's chicken or the egg, right? Like yeah. where, where do you think that comes from? I, where, where, where? I,
1: I mean, we always would set the goal and then work our way back to the team. So what and do be we like, need to get to does, that? Does that solve? Like can, and then how can we break that down? Like how could we do it with less a, at a point in time? And then you get to the point where you're like, how do we get owners for everything? And how do we make sure we have enough? And how do we understand the components that have to scale up? I don't know. It's just maybe the way my brain worked. I always thought in like a multi-year planning base way, if we want to get to, you know, 500k this year and 5 million next year and 15 million the year after like what how do we like at least come up with some scenarios that pass that gut check and then just constantly test them we set our goals for three years and really no idea how we were going to accomplish that but went through that exercise as a founding team and it's amazing looking back how close we were that's (laughs) cool
0: I think it's because a lot of the times it's like, you're, ironically, your gut is like, oh, I know we can get there. When you think about like your planning cycles now, like what does that look like? Are you already planning next year? Do you have it in that plan is loosely done the year before for this next year? Like how, do, how does that work? Right?
1: Yeah, we. I mean, we've always had what we think our ARR target for next year will be. That's That's been defined for some time. Yeah. And now we're in the point where we had an original like we built our 2022 headcount plan early in 2021, because yeah. it's like, you can't just build the 21 plan. You have to think about how it connects to the 22 sure. plan, but then you're constantly validating that. And Got it. You know, we invest so like in the- like
0: adjusting yeah. like, yeah, real actual-
1: We invest in the strength and we've always kind of built the conservative, the aggressive, and then the middle plan. And we yeah. always set our headcount target at the middle plan, set our ARR target at the aggressive plan. And then as we're having success, invest towards aggressive. So you just yeah. increase the pace of your hiring um this year we started with a plan to have 100 people then we ended up doing our b early and that plan went to 130 people and i think we'll exit this year at 160 people it's just because we're seeing strength and the unit economics makes sense so we want to continue to nail what's working
0: i I guess the the question is for a lot of folks is like you have your historical data right but then sometimes depending on where you are like if you're before the like invest a dollar get three out you know and you're invest a dollar get one to six out you know when you're at that point the historical data can sometimes be unreliable and then you're doing future future proofing with like a lot of assumptions right how do you structure that so that it's not like we've had years thankfully not as recent but like we've had years where it was like well that we just did q1 completely different and uh we kind of just completely abandoned everything we had to like reshuffle right And, and that's like, I know that's coming from some sort of like failure somewhere, but like, wh- where, how do you account for all
1: Yeah, it's, I, we've, we've been fortunate that, you know, we kind of got to a definition of ideal customer profile. And Real the quick, mistake yeah. I, I hear from a lot of people is they overestimate the market. Like, oh, our TAM is $5 billion and there's that's what the raising a million requires, people. Yeah. A million, having your board plan be separate from your capital plan, I yeah. think you want to, you want to put the hardest rush yeah. on your plan like, like is this real i'm signing up to the board to do this i mean board meetings are hard when you say you're going to do something and you don't do it yeah. so you want to make sure what you're signing up for you and your entire leadership team have absolute confidence you can do and then you can always expand like everyone like it's a good story when you're always exceeding plan because totally. you you take a really hard and critical high is it. a
0: bit in your control so you can put your we always put like our mid non-aggressive plan as always our board goal right like that's kind of how we structure it and thankfully there there have been more years now than not where it's like we're actually trending towards aggressive you know and so you know that's always helpful but the ideal customer profile thing i think is really interesting because i think people start it's it's a real struggle because people start planning too aggressively i think sometimes when they don't have enough information and then every conversion number percentages compounds the problem of planning. So it's like, oh, we think we can convert these leads at this rate. We think this is going to be the ARPU or LTV. And then all of a sudden you're running into something where it's like, well, if three, all three of those assumptions are off by a certain percentage. You just have these giant swings, plan, actual, and like always keeping that as central. Like it sounds like capital efficiency and, and planning is very, very central to everything. And therefore like, you could just constantly like vector that plan so that it just improves over time and you don't get these unrealistic like looks at things.
1: I think especially in the, the you learn so much in the early days. And I, I, think, I think a lot of people also in that zero to a million dollar phase, aren't one thing. They're yeah. like five different things that Weird. they experimented with, like, like getting to that repeatable thing. <laughs> Cause that's the only way this planning model works. Cause your unit economics assumptions only work when you're doing one thing. If there are five separate things, you have to make five separate unit economics assumptions. And I, d- I don't think like a lot of companies succeed being too many things too early.
0: And this is that that's been our problem too, where I think the other thing that we did, and this was the nature of bootstrapping with a free product, which I don't recommend yeah. to most people, um, is we didn't have enough reps to understand like where the repeatability was. And then all of a sudden when you get enough reps, you start kind of dedicating towards a plan. Like it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where then you could start to predict and extrapolate out, which I think too many people like because they're raising cash and, you know, they have to put together this fake plan and then they, you know, set themselves up for failure by not doing the, the real actual and then basically making the algorithm better over time, which is interesting.
1: I think trying to scale your go-to-market before you're ready is probably the number one mistake of not capital-efficient companies because you end up burning through, you burn. You hire people with the best intentions, they're not able to be successful, they end up leaving you or you end up firing them and you start over. And you have to do that with leadership and salespeople and all supporting infrastructure. That is unbelievably expensive.
0: I really like... Um I don't know if you know Mark Roberge. I mean, you probably heard of him at some point. Stage two is the go-to-market. And what most people do is they start to do the go-to-market too early. And they're still finding that product-market fit. And then the result is is basically like exactly like you said, is all over the place. The higher the 50 reps, the 50 reps all have to get fired because the demand hasn't been figured out. The product-market fit hasn't been figured out. Yeah, and it just gets, you know, dramatic, unfortunately. you end up with a
1: sales-driven product backlog because sellers are trying to create ways to make their numbers, which then turn into commitments to customers that you may or may not want to live up to. It's very
0: old school. It's like, I think when you did this in SaaS 2.0, which was like late 90s to about 2010, 2015, that was fine. Like, I mean, New Relic, uh, joint customer, right? Like their first phase was literally just buy the market. Go do it. And I know, you know, some of the reps that were in the early stage, it was like, you know, you had a 700 person company and 450 of them were all salespeople. And I just remember one of the former product leaders, you know, he was like, yeah, it was like anarchy. Like, and he came in to like, kind of like, you know, do it. But that was kind of the right way to build things back then. But now I think it's, there's enough FUD in the market and there's enough density that like, you kind of have to be a little bit more like pinpointed, you know, and capital efficient, you know, that type of thing.
1: Sarah, where like a spreadsheet inside of a vertical company could be a billion-dollar SaaS product. It's, you know, they're, they're likely... Oftentimes are, a
0: literal spreadsheet. Yeah. Like uh, Airtable or something like right. that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So
1: I, I think there's so many markets that are barely understood, and there's so much waste and inefficiency inside of <laughs> most verticals that, like, we're we're just at the earliest days of uh, the quantity of software companies. And, and even the more specific the market, the easier it is to be repeatable.
0: Would you recommend like stacking? So let's say your product—I presume your product—but maybe more of it. Let's say a generic SaaS product could be sold to like three different verticals. In the plan, are those three different verticals three different sets of line items, basically?
1: So we, I mean, it's interesting because we look at software as, and I, I don't, I haven't come up with a way to describe software as a horizontal vertical because okay. software is in every vertical yeah, and then yeah, it, yeah. it kind of spans its own industry segment. So for us, we don't actually track the vertical markets that way. We, we track company, our customers, because they're all software companies by stage. So it's, you have the kind of seed and series A startups who, you know, are trying to figure out their go to market for us. Our customers are successful when they sell through the clouds. And those early companies, some of them won't succeed. So the yeah. metrics associated with the business may be very different. Do
0: you break those out then? Like yeah, do you we break the them three down. three stages, three yeah. types of deals? And then okay. we have like
1: the growth stage companies in the middle, series B and up, who are all investing significantly in scale and go to market. Then we have the top 100 who are the
0: So your planning basically takes those three segments into account. Yeah. And then... You're basically planning like this many of this this quarter such and such we have
1: different metrics by sure. segment we have different teams by segment we expect different customer journeys by segment they're all under that one umbrella of software I'm just as imagining you ecosystem. every day
0: you walk in it's like Minority Report with a spreadsheet. I was talking to someone from Shopify, and he's like, "Hey, the faster
1: you can get to 100% dashboard driven, like, like meetings should be dashboards." And That's- I'm like, "Oh, I dream of the day we're when we're there."
0: Right now, of like, we're multi-product, but not like necessarily that disparate of teams. I finally took everything from we had a separate board deck, you know, spreadsheet. We had a separate revenue meeting spreadsheet. Just started merging everything. Like, just it's like cool. It needs to be in here. It doesn't exist, and like you said, as soon as it can get into dollar in, I know I'm going to get three to three fifty out. And as much as I can do is, is, is the game, you know, as much as dashboards as possible. Shopify's Shopify though. So it's a little, little hard to learn sometimes from those types of companies. What, uh, do, do you have any, like, if someone wanted to learn more about this, I don't know if you've published anything externally about this, but like, or they want to find like great templates. Like, do you have a suggestion or no? Yeah. Like, Nicole's with us, and she you're gonna marketing be this guy. And, and that's what it no, she like. yeah. she
1: she knows. This is a topic I'm passionate about. I've given talks on it before, but oh. I I have like this three part blog series I've wanted to release that I okay. just haven't had time to finish. Stop so. That. And no, there's a Buffalo Startup Week talk where I talk about capital efficiency and hyper growth under the Buffalo same-
0: Startup Week, search your name in Buffalo yeah. Startup that, Week. The, it's okay. a
1: talk I actually gave with Mike Dross, who, who's our partner yeah. from Bessemer. He's on our board. Cool. And we talked about the kind of two personas, like I want to build capital efficient hypergrowth, And he talked about it from a venture capital standpoint, That's what great. they look for. That's so awesome. So that was the last decent talk I gave That's a great, on this. Sounds
0: like a great resource. So. Yeah. Well, this has been great, man. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? Anything you want to plug?
1: Yeah, you can find us on tackle.io if you want to learn more about cloud marketplaces or anything digital selling. And you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, I, I tend to talk about most of these topics uh, in both of those places. So, cool.
0: Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. Appreciate it.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah. Great chatting.
0: A huge shout out to John for doing the podcast. Now you have what it takes to manage capital both effectively and efficiently. Today, we talked about market integration, the baseline of effective selling, the framework of capital efficiency, calibrating planning cycles and insights on product stacking. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a good five-star review of the podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. The podcast gods tend to like that sort of thing, and hey, we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfileWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions.